to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. Brought to you by FunkinStuff.net, this is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist, creative arts journalist, and multimedia pro. Whether you're watching the video version of this show or the audio-only podcast version, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in this show. If you enjoy this programming, there are several ways to help support Truth and Rhythm, as well as contribute to further enhancements and expansion, plus get some sweet perks and rewards in the process. First, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Second, join Truth and Rhythm's new membership program through Patreon, which features three tiers for truth believers, Truth Seekers, and Truth Crusaders. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkinstuff.net. At that site, which is loaded with awesome content, you can also purchase the book Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. Sponsorship opportunities are available as well. Contact me directly at scottg at funkinstuff.net. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Mothership musician, composer, and producer, Michael Lane, otherwise known as Microwave. Having grown up in a musical family and performed in bands from an early age, in the mid-1980s, he found himself being mentored by none other than funk bass legend Bootsy Collins. Lane, as Michael Wave, in 1987, released the album Cooking from the Inside Out, in which not only Bootsy figured prominently, but also fellow funk stars Bernie Worrell, Maceo Parker, and Catfish Collins. Lane also collaborated with Bootsy on projects by Trouble Funk, Herbie Hancock, and George Clinton. Also influenced by Prince and Roger Troutman, Lane went on to work with many other noteworthy artists, as well as score films. Most recently, he released the funky EP called The Definition, and he plans to put out more material in 2021. Michael, thank you for joining me. How you doing? Oh, man, it is a pleasure to be here. It is a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. Good to be here. Yes, yes. It's mutual, believe me. Thank you for making the time, and uh, glad we oh, can man. finally connect. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Good. So, and good to see you well, all things considered. Hey, you know, and, and that's, a, that's a good thing to say now. We were losing so many and so fast, and people are just getting sick from this thing, and you just got to, I, I just want to throw it out there, just stay home. Stay out of the way as much as you can. That's what I do. Let's, let's get it done. Wear a mask and be done with it. <laughs> that's where we are but hey man it's a pleasure like i said I, i'm a fan of the show man and I'm, I'm proud to be on here it's a, it's a proud moment for me and thank you again for having me my yes, pleasure yes. my pleasure and uh where are you coming to us from today i'm actually in illinois uh uh i went it, it's funny uh this i'm back where i started and i bootsy came to peoria illinois and picked me up in <laughs> basically 1980 he picked me up and moved me to Cincinnati. It was, uh, I remember it was like January of 83 because it was right after my birthday. My birthday is the end of December. And um, in Peoria, Illinois, he came and took me to Cincinnati. I've been gone ever since then until the pandemic started. Then I came back home. So <laughs> like I've been on tour. So yeah, I'm back in the house I started in. 
Wow. So, yeah. Bracing with the cold again, I guess. <laughs> yeah, man, you know, I, I, I've been all over the place. Um, you know, Vegas was a short stay, so it was definitely hot there. Uh, overseas, we did Hong Kong, Japan, Philippines, uh, uh, you name it, I've lived all over. It's been 35 some years or something like that. And, you know, it, it the, the cold doesn't bother me as much as it did when I lived here back in the day, because back in the day, I had to deal with the cold. I had to deliver newspapers. So, you know, right now I don't do any of that. So it's all good. Where you at? You said, where are you? Exactly. Well, I'm, I'm outside Charlotte. So it's kind of cold. It was in the 20s yeah, today. Yeah. But nothing yeah. like, nothing like. No, uh, no. We got, well, we were 18 degrees yesterday. Yeah. Oof. That was a heat wave. <laughs> <laughs> that's, well, that's okay. You're used to heating things up. So, you know. Oh, yeah. It's the wave, man. Mm -mm -mm. There you go. So, you know. Coming from uh, Illinois, Champaign, I believe. Yep, exactly. Yep. How, how did that uh, kind of shape your musical roots? And, you know, what was it like growing up in a musical family as you did? Well, I, I'll start with this. In, in the town of Champaign, um, there's a college there called the University of Illinois. It's a, big, it's a pretty major college. And back in the, in the 70s, if during the Vietnam War, not that I was old enough for that, but I knew what was going on. That college in Champaign, the U of I, if you were, if you went to that college, if you were enrolled in that college, it made you draft exempt. So all the musicians from Chicago and all the other places came to that city to go to school so that they wouldn't have to be drafted or, or dodge the draft, which in turn, developed a really rich musical city, all types of music. I mean, Ario Speedwagon is from there, just being such a small town. Cheap Trick is from around the corner, 40 miles up the road. Uh, the group Champagne, who we'll get more into them, uh, one of the groups that I produced when I was there, uh, well, when I went back there. Uh, so th there was Jack McDuff was there. There was always, the, the, the uh, Bonnie, Bonnie Blair, is that her name? Am I saying that right? The, mm -hmm. the, is that maybe that's a skater? The number one uh, 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 bluegrass girl. What's her name? But not Bunny Reed. No, no, out of bluegrass. Uh, uh, not sure. Yeah. Well, the number one. This girl's one. It's going to come to me in a minute. But she's from there. There's a lot of music that comes out of there. The group. I don't know if you know the group Semisonic. If you remember, it's a rock band. They had a song out called Closing Time. I know who I want to take me home. The drummer was my drummer. You know, so there was always music, music coming out of that town. Now, my dad was a drummer. Um, I'm gonna tie you into a couple of other things. Um, his brother was a drummer. His brother's name was Johnny Boy. You've heard this name. I'll come back to Johnny Boy. Uh, you probably heard it as Uncle Johnny Boy. So that's my dad's brother. My dad's dad was a saxophone player. All of the musicians were all over my family. My uncle was a guitar player. Uh, my other uncles, the, the guys that weren't really my uncles that were really close to my family that we called uncles, they were all musicians. So all I ever knew was musicians, musicians, singers, musicians, from Jack McDuff to these, all these guys around me. And, so it was inevitable that we would become musicians. And, and at, at some point in our life, I'd say maybe 10, 11, my dad came to me and my two brothers, which was Ricky and Chris, and asked us what instrument we wanted to play. It wasn't like, do you want to play an instrument? It's like, which one do you want to play? <laughs> so we, we chose, you know, Ricky, he's the oldest. He had already been playing drums for a minute. He's probably 11 then. So I chose guitar. And my brother Chris chose keyboards, and eventually we switched, you know. So he ended up playing a lot of key, uh, guitar on everything, you know. And I ended up playing keys and singing, and we formed a band. And, you know, it, the, the whole thing, you know, if, if you'd walk down our street, uh, there were so many bands rehearsing in the garage. There's a band here. There's us. We were called Instant Cool Gemini. There's another band up the street. The, uh, the, 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 my cousins, Tony's and Eric's and... Ebony, Ebony Love, Ebony, Ebony Love, whatever the name was. I can't remember all the names. But there was just so much music always around me and in my family and in this city. So it was just really rich. And we all got to perform in the park. And it was people still remember that stuff. 
as, as if it was yesterday in, in, in that town, just for it to be so small and have so much music. And all of the bigger artists would always come there and perform. And at once, <laughs> the Shy Lights came and performed, and I ended up uh, auditioning for them. They needed a keyboard player. And I went to Chicago and auditioned. And me and my brothers drove up there. And I went and auditioned, and uh, I actually got the gig. But because I was so afraid to be there, I was 18 then, I was so afraid to leave my city, my small town, and be in a big city like Chicago, I turned it down. So that, that that's... That's my musical history. Now I'll get back to that name, Johnny Boy. We used to go to Cincinnati, Ohio, just before I knew Bootsy anyway. I was 13. So we used to go to Cincinnati, Ohio on vacation because we had family there. I was going to visit my Uncle Johnny Boy. Uncle Johnny Boy had a son named Tiger. You know Tiger. <laughs> and I remember one time we were there and, and I said, Tiger, Tiger was getting ready to go do a gig. One of the most colorful uh, interviews ever on this show. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) That was good. (laughs) Ah, double. You had to do that. You had to do a a double on that. We had to extend the interview or something, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He's he's a character with a capital C, but uh, enjoyed it. Enjoyed him a lot. (laughs) That's good. That is my true cousin. And I had saw him one time when he went there. I made 13. I was like, where you going, Tiger? He said, I'm getting ready to go do a gig. I said, who are you going, doing a gig with? He said, uh, with Phelps and Bootsy. I said, I don't know who that is. <laughs> he said, well, we're getting ready to go play with uh, uh, Parliament. Or Funk- he said, Funkadelic. He said, we're going to go play Funkadelic. I was like, all right, man. Hey, y'all got any more of that chicken in there? <laughs> that, was, I was like, that was our family. You know what I mean? It's just we were all music all the time and it just keeps going my nieces now my sister's kids they're doing big things uh uh, uh they one of them plays she's been beyonce's bass player for seven eight years you know she still plays with us beyonce just stopped and my other nieces play drums with ti and blues people and they just it just keeps going my sons my everybody's we just we do music we do music. Did, That's what we do. So did you have any uh, formal training or was it just kind of well, picked up? Well, we, 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 we grew up lower middle class, but in a middle class neighborhood. So we had to fake a lot of things like we had some money. So we were we could afford for one of us to go take lessons. So we sent Chris to be trained as the guitar player. That made the most sense. So he'd come back and teach us what he learned. So we got free lessons. We learned theory through him, you know. And uh, so that's the most formal training we had, but it was bootleg, but it worked. Yeah. <laughs> I, couldn't tell you, I couldn't tell you the name of any chords right now. You, you'd have to spell them out for me. Cause I, I didn't really get into the theory. And uh, I learned early in, in my writing <clears throat> career that it's good that I didn't know theory because I think theory kind of messes you up as a writer. Because you start following guidelines. It's like, Man, sometimes it can keep you like in a box. Right? Yeah, exactly. And, and and those boxes are good when you're getting paid, but you got to figure it out. So, yeah, I, I um, not formally trained, but enough to understand where to go and where not to go, you know, um, musically. So, yeah. So when you were playing with your brothers, you know, what types of material mm-hmm. were you typically mm-hmm. playing? Like top 40 uh, R&B top stuff? 40. Yeah. We were, we were because we were a horn band. We had four horns. There was Tony, Reggie, uh, Gary, and uh, uh, whoever the fourth one, Bodar or Ray or whoever it was, and, and Todd. And we'd have horns in the band, so we would do top 40 brass construction, confunction, uh, average white band. Yeah, and it's funny because a lot of these bands I ended up working with as I got older, it was, it was a trip to me. It's like, wow. I mean, me and Felton, Elton's on speed dial in my phone, you know, it's like Barquet's, uh Frank, you know, me and Frank used to hang out, man. It's like, I grew up watching these guys, man. Now it's like, and, and, and we played a lot of KC and, and one time, I think I was uh, maybe a 13, we we modeled ourselves after the, the, the rhythm and dance and colors of KC and the Sunshine Band. And I swore, I saw him in Springfield one time, I had to be 17, I said, one day I'm gonna play with that guy. And I ended up touring with him on keyboards about four or five years ago. 
did wow. the, a whole um, South American tour. So uh, a lot of horn band stuff, lots of that. Just you know, a lot of funk stuff. Was there was there anyone in particular that you sort of looked up to aside that was outside your family as sort of a, a before Bootsy as, as sort of like a mentor or somebody who you uh, emulated or aspired to? Um, Larry Dotson. You couldn't tell me I wasn't Larry <laughs> when I started when I started singing. I I I was Larry. You couldn't tell me I cut my hair like Larry. I wore the clothes like Larry. I was ow. You know, but I'd never made any records that really sounded like him. Um, as far as that went, that I thought he was the greatest entertainer, man, in this funk world. You know, he he would carry the barcades. He would carry that group. You know, they they were there. But I really felt like Larry carried that group, and I ended up meeting him. Uh, Eventually, I, st I still want to work with him. I always mention it, you know. He's hung out with me at my gigs. He probably wouldn't remember me, but he's been right there. Um, and uh, one other situation, I, I, when I was 20, maybe 23, I heard this song called Body Talk. <laughs> and I was like, who and what is that? I was living here in Peoria. And I'm like, I got, I got to figure out who that is. And, and I figured the out who it was. The deal. I went to the record store. I'm gonna turn this fan off because it's starting to get a little chilly. So I went to the record store and I bought I bought a cassette. The only cassette I've ever purchased in my life was that cassette. And and I wore it out. You know, there was body talk, there was the video villain, all those songs were just on that just my luck. It was like, wow, these guys are amazing. I was like 22 years old, 23 years old. I said, This is everything that I feel in music in these guys they sound like prince they sound like funk the singer is just phenomenal i love it. i love the arrangements i love everything about this group this is what i encompass as a musician this is me this is what and and i ended up meeting those guys the first set of guys i met when i moved to cincinnati i didn't know that's where they were from when i moved to cincinnati and they were pretty much like hey man what's up how you doing that's like man Y'all the deal. Like, yeah, yeah, get away from here, little boy. <laughs> like, okay, I'm cool with that with y'all. It's cool. And Boosie has introduced me. It's like, man, this is this is Michael. This is my new artist. She's like, LA was like, oh, okay, you cool with us then, you know. And, and uh we ended up doing sessions with him. Me and Bootsy did uh, uh LA actually produced a song on Bootsy called Body Tight, and I was there in that session. We were working, I think I was doing some keys, and uh that was the day that Bootsy named Babyface when Babyface when Kenny walked in like Babyface and it stuck. So I'm sure you've heard that story. But so, but ended up as much as I liked them, I ended up being the lead singer of the group and one of the producers and writers on the later stuff. You know, um, Carlos, who was the original lead singer, one of the original because they had three lead singers. They had Babyface, D, and Carlos. Of course, Babyface left, um, so that left D and Carlos and. Carlos would, would run off and do do his own thing a lot, you know. And, and this this group kind of reminds me of the story of Van Halen. Yeah. I would be Sammy Hagar, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'd come in. I'm the guy that's actually doing some music and have my own thing going on. But I'll come in and replace uh, David Lee Roth until David Lee Roth wants to come back. And then we can never be. We've actually done shows together on stage. I'll jump on keys like Sammy would jump on guitar, you know. So it's, it's kind of that, that story. But it was like. There was also a movie called Rockstar that was kind of like this guy that just watched his band, watched him like this, and then they pulled him up on stage and he became the lead singer. And so that that all those things stem from me. You know, you're asking about what who 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 I listened to growing up and them, Casey, uh, Prince. I, I I didn't really listen to Prince. I listened to Prince, but I felt like I came up with Prince. We both got in the game at the same time. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like, man, let me listen to what this guy is doing. It was like, okay, he's hot. That's hot. I'm going to try to figure out how he's doing this, but I'm going to do, I don't want to copy him. You know what I mean? I, but I want I want to be different. I want to be different than brass construction. I want to be different than confunction. I don't want to sound like the barcade. I don't want to sound like I did that, but so on, so on, or what was ever out then. Prince had his hand and his ear on that. It's like, I'm going to be different. But then... I thought I was. Then I heard Roger Troutman. I was like, oh. <laughs> that's it. 
let me find where I can get that tool back right there because I wasn't playing it. And and uh, Roger came to Peoria and he performed and I got to go backstage. Like Roger, how did you how do you make that sound? He's like, man. He said, let me tell you. You have to have all these scientists. They come in and they bring in chemists and a couple of construction workers and these people and these people. I said, for real? He's like, no, man, I'm just kidding. You got to take this too. You got to get this thing. You got to get this thing. Man, I went, it's just basically a horn from a PA system. I, and I took our PA system. We were short one horn that day. It's like, I'm going to make this thing happen. More bounce it out. Plug that thing in, put that tube in. And I really didn't understand how to work it. But at that time, Guitar magazine, guitar magazine, guitar player magazine. You could go in there and figure. Go. I went to a back issue where Joe Walsh showed how to build one. It's like, okay, I got it. Cause I was blowing in the tube. I thought I was, <laughs> I was doing it all backwards. So once I figured it out, it, it was on and popping, and I ended up uh, just you know doing that and and uh, uh, just getting really good at it. And forever, uh, me and Roger were best buds you know he always wanted me in his band but I, I would never play in his band you know he took half of my other members but i we were always cool always and when when he passed man that messed me up oh, yeah. well now both those guys are gone but yeah you can't even hear uh the troutman's doing some of that earlier on sons uh i want to make love flick my pick you know yeah yeah um, yeah but yeah. um of course yeah. really got a huge and more bounce um yeah but, um, did you ever get to see uh, the Barquets? Did they perform in Illinois? Did you see Larry Dotson on stage? Uh, you know, at a formulative oh, yeah. age. Yes. Yeah, I, I've always seen them. I'd go see them. I mean, um, I um, I would see them. They come to Illinois. I'd see them there. I'd go to Memphis and see them. I'd see them wherever they were. You know, if they were within grasp, I'm going because. I, that that was my thing, you know. I loved everything about them. That that they were, they were me. They, to me, I, and and I'm gonna tell you another band that I loved, and and you you'll know why I like the Barcades when I say this. Mother's Finest. Mm -hmm. I come from a rock city, rock and roll city, um, which is good because I didn't get caught up in I only know R and B or I only know funk. You know, mm -hmm. I come from a city where. Guitars ran the city, you know, loud guitars. We had the best guitarists, Gary Richrad, Slink Rand. We had the best guitarists ever in that city, and they're still there. These guys come up. Um, and, and so I was more on a rock, funk, kind of mother's finest, which Larry encompassed that. He was the only guy with the long, straight hair that would get out, you know, with the, the tight pants. Rockstar vibe. Yes, yeah. he was that guy. And and if you like my first album with Columbia, I ended. They let me put one rock song on there, but they, you know, I used drum machine. It didn't come out like like I wanted it to. But it's called All American Dream that me and Bootsy did. It was as rock as they were gonna let me get, you know. Uh, now I go wherever I want to go uh, with with the music. So it, it, it Barcades were great, man. Love seeing them. Well, and Prince too definitely had that rock influence. A lot of the uh, yes. groups from the Midwest. Seem to have had, you know, that rock exposure yeah. too, which yeah. makes it so yeah. much more interesting. You know, I think. yes, yes, so. yes. I I tell you how much I was into P Funk before I was part of it. I I thought George and Bootsy were the same person. This is, and it wasn't that I didn't like it. It's just I wasn't in it that deep. I was more, I, you know, I feel like back in the day, um, and, and and I think music does this thing. It brings people closer because. Uh, Back in the day, you had to choose where you were musically. Back in the seventies, if if you were a funk dude, you were a funk dude. You know, if you were rock, you were rock. If you were country, you were country. And I think part of that reason was because I call it the crate theory. You have a crate of albums, and you're only gonna get so much stuff in that crate. You know, and 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 when you start going through your records, you know, you you. If you really like funk, you got George Clinton, you got Parliament, you got uh, uh, whatever funk record. They're all in that crate. These are I'm real crates. I'm talking about with these albums, and you have room. You might throw in a, 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 a rock album, but that's not your thing. So 
we chose back then if you were into music you chose where you were almost like a gang member like yeah i'm funk man i'm funk i know that oh i'm rock oh, I'm, you know and, and and in school it was the same thing you were a jock or there were a lot of boundaries you had to stay in back then now <laughs> things are so different because your crate is a playlist it could be fifty thousand songs so i think people's musical palette is a lot more eclectic now and i think it's it brought people together musically, you know, because now there's something to talk about between teenagers. You know, we I can talk to my guy sitting next to me in class about music because I'm talking about something he's never heard of. I'm talking about the Barcades. He wants to talk about uh, 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 Van Halen or whoever is back then that he's listening to. And I'm like, we, we don't have a lot in common musically. So I think music kind of brought a commonality to man and now, you, you know, I, 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 and I ask people, I ask younger people, I'm like, what's in your, 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 your iPod or whatever, your playlist? And will be like, well, I got, I got a, a Brandy, I have a Cardi B, <laughs> I've got Lisa Lowe, I've got this classical dude. So they'll listen to it. So I, I, I just think, you know, with, with me growing up, I grew up like that because I was cool with everybody. So I heard all of this music in my city, you know, radio. Our radio was straight 94.5 rock pop music, period. On Sunday, we'd have Ernie Westfield for two hours. He played all the black music, and that's where we would hear it. And we were two and a half hours from Chicago. We would ride through there, and we'd turn on, as soon as we get close enough to turn on the radio station, we're hearing all the new stuff. So there in Indianapolis, we're two hours from Nap and two hours from Chicago. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's where we were. Musically. <laughs> so, you know, a little while ago you sort of jumped ahead to the, the Bootsy encounter and I want to uh, work our way back to that. So Okay. Mm -hmm. Um you were, as I understand it, kind of doing something else primarily, and you had a manager, I think, that uh brought you guys together. Can you uh share how that took place? Um that was here in Peoria. I was working at a um basically nowhere i was at a place and my management ran the place so they kind of gave me a job um teaching little kids how to play piano and they also had a um like a small video company where they it's like low budget videos for people and the guy that set all of that up bill waller was from cincinnati and he knew bootsy and he's like well let's do a video with bootsy you at that time like 23 24 you couldn't tell me Two Bootsy songs that weren't hit records and I would have known. So I'm like, okay, Bootsy coming up. All right. So he came up and he did the video and I was his prop man. You know, I'd help him, you know, get things together, hold this, you know. Yeah. Okay, you're looking good over there, looking good over there. And I was like, Bootsy, man, I got these uh these tapes <laughs> of some demos I did. So let me hear it. He heard them and he's like, Yeah, man, you coming to Cincinnati. And from there, man, I went. Uh, I gave it about six months to really get it together, you know, get get everything put together and taken apart here in Peoria. And I moved into the house with him and his mom, who were the only ones, and his sister uh, lived downstairs. Huge house out on the farm or ranch. It was the end of the farm, now it's a ranch. Uh, and we were kind of, we were upstairs. He was in one room. I was across the hall in another bedroom. And we both had four track recorders and we would just do music and music and just do tracks and tracks and let's write. One of the first things he said, let's just write and let's write everything you can write. And if you can think of it, write it. I don't care. Let's write rock. Let's write country. Let's write jazz, funk, R&B, slow songs, whatever you're going to write. Let's write it now. And well, we hold, there, hold, hold up a second. Uh -huh. I'm going to interrupt you. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, but when you first met Bootsy face to face, mm -hmm. what were you thinking? How did he impress you? What kind of presence did he have? What was he like? You know. Uh, well, because I didn't know much about his uh, his persona, his personality, personality. Um, he was just the coolest guy. I mean, he was fun. You would think you're going to meet Bootsy and you're going to get 
Oh yeah, Bobble, nice to meet you. Uh, let's go to the party and kick it like this, Bobble. That's not what it was. It was microwave. Man, I'm digging what you're doing, man. Let's get in. Let's get in. Let's do this. Let's do that, man. Let's uh, let's let's get some stuff done, man. I'm liking that. You know, let me hear that. Oh yeah, I like that. This was all of the time with him. It was let's do music. Let let's. Let's hang out. We hung out. I mean, we kicked it like brothers. You know, Bootsy is seven years older than me, but he brought me in as his little brother. I mean, that was our claim. This is my little brother. If I was introduced by Bootsy, this is my little brother, Microwave. But I, I, obviously he found like something endearing about you to bring you into his life like that. Well, yeah. same thing that happened with Sly Stone when I met Sly. I played with Sly for a hot minute. I bring... One thing, and, and they all say it, everybody, because I've never done any drugs. I've never even smoked weed. You know, I've, I've done my share of alcohol, but Sly would look at me and go, I could have been you <laughs> if I hadn't got on these drugs. I could have been you. He said, I know I'm Sly, but you happy I could have been you. Um, if you look on Bootsy's Party on Plastic album in the credits, you'll see where he credits the people that help him get off of drugs and my name is in that set of people um he was off when i met him but when you're with me it, it, this is i i'll give you another story that comes down to that um because i don't do drugs but you would think me coming from p-funk i'm high as hell gary scheider so I mean I I'll go back I'll go back to Bootsy but I want to give you this because we're talking about that. Um, Gary Scheider I was in Tokyo we, I'm sure we'll get to that part I was do, I was gigging in Tokyo I had a house gig there and Gary, Bernie, everybody would come to those gigs and and um Gary and Bernie were at one and Gary I, I had this long break between sets it was like an hour and fifteen minutes and I lived ten minutes away from the venue. And Gary came in one time like man hey Mikey. That's all the guys people call me, Mikey. Hey, Mikey, take me to the funk on where you go on break. You know what that means? You know, take me to get some dope. I'm like, all right. We in Tokyo. I don't know. So I grabbed Gary. I said, let's go. We jumped in a taxi and we went to my studio, which was 10, 15 minutes away from the venue. And I handed him a guitar. He said, what a dope. I said, I just put it in your hand. And I, put, I, play, I started the track and put him in record. The song's called Lady Rose. He played through it non-stop i said okay great just solo on through it and i said i'll fix all of that when you're done um after the fact after he was done we got back in the taxi and we were on our way back to the club he said thanks thanks mikey i said for what he said that's the best dope you could have got me he said thank you he said i go now 1998 was when that was uh, 97. I released the album. That album, the, the single is on uh, uh, YouTube. It's a video. I shot a video for it. Shot the video in 90, 99, 98. But I released the song in 2000 or maybe 99. So when I went to edit it, I said, I need a shot of Gary. I need a shot of Gary Scheider in here where he was playing. And so I was just going to find something and maybe slow motion on YouTube and put it in there or a picture. The line that he did on the record went, right? The first thing I went to, he was on a show with Bootsy, one of the last shows he did with Bootsy. And Bootsy was kind of like, Gary, go on out there, do what you do. By itself, no band. Same key, same tempo. He was already dead. He's already gone. I cried like a baby. I can't remember who I was talking to. I said, you won't believe what just happened. Gary left me this line so he could make it onto that song. That same key, same tempo, same rhythm. So I took that and that's in the video. It was just the craziest thing I've ever seen. I, uh, I always end up with stuff like that. With, with He just left it for me. It's like, wow. So... I don't know where I was going before that. I was talking about Bootsy, but I got on that. So anyway, that's the, the drug thing. They, 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 a lot of the guys that were on drugs liked being around me because I wouldn't do the drugs. Mm -hmm. So me and Bootsy's relationship 
I, he really clung to me because I never was the guy going, man, let's go get high. No, I'm the guy going, man, let's go make another song. Let's go make more songs. Let's go make more songs. And I'm young as hell. I'm like, man, let's make music. Let's make songs. Let's make songs. Let's make songs. And 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 so he dug that, and it, it kind of kept him going. He he actually gave me a name. He used to call me Bobby, right? B O B B Y. And I was like, Bootsy, why? He said, he said it's an acronym. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, I got Bootsy's Rubber Band. Well, that's acronym is Bootsy's Other Brothers Band, y'all. Because I had a band called Bobby, so it was like we had we had fun, man. We had a lot of fun doing music, man. And, Sounds and, like in a way you're sort of like a breath of fresh air, you know? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I was I was happy to be that. And I'm always happy to be that for people, you know. And and some people are a breath of fresh air for me, you know. So mm -hmm. keep it. So that was a huge thing for you. I'm thinking uprooting your life like that, basically, and and going to do that. It, it was it was um it was organic i'll just put it like that you know i'm 23 i'm in a town that can't handle me you know i'm <laughs> i think they can't handle me i'm gonna blow up i gotta go so this is a perfect place and you know i ended up in cincinnati out there for seven eight nine years i have children there i had a family um several uh, uh friends uh, and i had family there before i even went there so which Never thought I would end up there, but you know it was a beautiful thing. Uh, and my management uh, ended up managing Bootsy. Part of the, uh, Dana Davis, he ended up managing Bootsy, and so it, it was a big deal. What, what was it like seeing Bootsy in the laboratory? You know, doing his thing and 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 what he does. That's funny. That's funny because it's like seeing Bootsy at the dinner table. <laughs> for me because we were around each other so much and Bootsy would one of the things that he did he'd give me the reins and just I'd go in the studio with him he'd be like go he, he, and he's gonna watch what I do one time he handed me the space base and said play it you played it on the demo I'm like huh yeah so ended up playing it was on a Herbie Hancock record that's me on bass because he's not, he's not into it. I mean, he's into it, but he's not like, it's gotta be Bootsy, it gotta be me. No, he wants you to get it. He, he, it what it's like is like your big brother trying to get you put on. It's that, and uh, he'll give it to you. Uh, but when he, when he goes in, oh, he's going in. When he say, okay, let me get at it now. <laughs> and then, then you know Bootsy just walked in. The thunder begins. You know, you you was in there making little crackling noises. When he turned that thing on and he get on it, which he don't do a lot. No, you know it just happened. Like, go sit down now. But he doesn't do it a lot. He wants you to to pick it up. He wants you to get it. At least with me, you know, um, he's not he's not that guy. Like, I need to do everything. I need to play all of this. One of the first things he taught me. When the first words out of his mouth when I got to Cincinnati was, Wave, don't take all the credit if you cannot take all of the blame. And that's that put a lot a lot on me. And George would say the same stuff. George's thing to me, because I used to write a lot with George uh, and Gary, he would say, let's talk percentages instead of court dates. That was George's name. So they, you know, because they've done it enough, you know. When, when when did you first get to meet George? Um, we were in Detroit. We used to what me and Bootsy would do. This was still early, no record deals, nothing. We were still early in. Uh, this was right after R and B skeletons. George was um, working on projects. He had R and B skeletons. He had a bunch of deals going, and in Detroit, he probably had five studios running every day all over Detroit. So we we me and Bootsy would sit in in the house and come up with tracks, tracks, just funk track, funk track, funk track, funk tracks over here, funk tracks over there. And then we basically go to Detroit with a handful of tracks and go from studio to studio to studio where George had everybody spread out and give them tracks. And George George would be with us. He'd be like, okay, that'll be good for uh, uh, Jimmy G and Tacky. Let me get that. You got anything else like that, Mike? What, Boots, you got anything over here for uh, 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 Pretty Fat? Or this, you know, we got, we're working on a, uh, uh, 
Andre Fox over here. You got anything for Andre Fox here? You know, so that's what it was like. So we being that's when I met George. So George came right out like, "What's up, Mikey? Man, you know I didn't have no records or nothing." And uh, 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 it's funny. And and so we go from studio to studio, passing out tracks. And we come back the next day. They put up vocals on, you know. And and Amp Fiddler was there. Amp was with us. Uh, Amp would we drop some off here because everywhere you go, there'd be a producer in there. So Amp would be here. Andre Fox would be here with a group of people. George would be here, so on. And Gary would be over here. And and we just go brokering songs. So when I met George, this was the orange and red braid George and R&B skeletons George. So. Uh, immediately we went and did a record in LA. That's what it's talking about. We went, this was just me and George and Gary. I wrote a song with Linda, which is Gary's wife. It was a track that we dropped there. We dropped off and Linda picked it up and went home and wrote a song called Beautiful. Yes, yeah, so beautiful. And um, so Bootsy sent me to LA to go record the song with George and Gary. I remember we were Sunset Studios. And we were in there recording. And now the booth, like if I'm in the booth, they see me there, they're five rooms away. So they're seeing me on a TV screen. And I can see them on a TV screen. So I, I hit the first line. I'm singing and playing talk box, and it was my music track. And I end the sky, divine fantasy. Yeah, yeah. That sounds good, man. Sounds good. And George would always say, Yeah, man, that's dicking. That's dicking. I was like, okay, all right, we're dicking. That means it's good. And so I'd go to the next line. Y'all so beautiful. Right. And he's like, that's good, that's good. And uh, so remember, I can't see them all the time because we all it's all video feed. Gave it a minute. Sung the next line. I was like, how's that, George? No answer. How's that, Gary? No answer. Engineer, what? What's going on? How's that? Hey, they left. <laughs> Where'd they go? He said they, they said they had to go to another studio. They said, you got this. Go on and finish. So I ended up finishing the record. And the record, it was my record. I had signed with MCA, right, for a 12-inch deal. And uh, so... I did the record, finished the record without them. I dollar talk boxes. Gary came in eventually and put some background on it. Yeah, this guy, I don't know if you ever heard the song. It's, it's on YouTube. It's called Beautiful. Okay, so anyway, that was MCA. Now, around that time, I'm just going to continue on with this story since we're there. Around that time, I actually wanted to sign. They wanted to sign me with Columbia. And, uh, but I'd already had the 12-inch deal with MCA. But Columbia basically bought me out of the deal. But MCA is like, hey, this record is done. We paid for it. We want to put it out. And Columbia's like, well, you're not putting it out under microwave. They're like, okay, we'll put it out under Gary Scheider. The song is out now under Gary Scheider with him not singing, not playing, not doing nothing on the song. Might be a background note or two. But it's a Gary Scheider record. And it's the only Gary Scheider record I've ever heard that's me. <laughs> it's like, what happened there, man? Just the type of stuff that was going on back then, you know? Yeah. Crazy, well, especially, especially with P Funk related things. Yeah, yeah, man, it's a microwave record. If anybody that listens now, go, oh yeah, that's microwave. This talk box, it's all my music, it's all my vocals, and I, I, I it's not something I go, oh yeah, that's my record. No, I don't care what y'all do with it. Everything was jumping off like that back then, because we had so much going on, man. We had so much. We were trying to bring electronic we're trying to bring funk to a different place because it, it it had died you know it's like okay let's electronify this thing let's let's take this and that was me and amp that had to do that amp fiddler is like i'm on bootsy's team me and bootsy gonna make it happen and amp and george it didn't catch on it did it did it didn't catch because right as it was starting to get that grip they come new edition, Bobby Brown, Bell Bivol, all of that stuff, just Keith Sweat, Teddy Riley. Take all that stuff and throw it out. Yeah. That's where it went. So yeah, we 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 tried, but you know, it, it, it wasn't that good. I mean, we were doing the best we could, but you can't do funk electronically. It's impossible. It's not funk anymore. Uh, so what went into you getting that Columbia deal? Um, and you know, how psyched were you to get it? Oh, wow. Well, 
Here's that story. I, uh, like I said, I was with MCA first, and these were when they were giving 12-inch deals, and 12-inch deals were paying about $12,000 to record because it costed about that much to record a record. Um, once we passed on that, we went to Columbia. I guess they offered a better deal, seven, maybe 17000 plus some publishing or something. Whatever the number was, it was better, and my team thought I should go over there and leave that record alone, or maybe they were offering a video. And so when I did the I did the uh, the twelve inch with Columbia it was a song called we actually the song called Misunderstood that was the first single, um, and uh, they heard the cassette and they were like yeah we like this Bootsy wasn't even signed with anybody and we were both trying to get deals, <clears throat> so we got the deal and they're like okay go record it we went in um, in Cincinnati recorded Misunderstood <clears throat> at the time they were like hey we're gonna need a flip side. But mind you, uh, I had already had that deal with MCA. So I'm trying to be the big man. I had a band in Cincinnati. I like what I'm going to do, band, because I got a deal with MCA. I'm going to go ahead and produce y'all record. So I produced this ballad. It was called Instant Replay on the band. Right. And, and uh, so moving forward, that ballad is sitting at the studio, just sitting there. We're not doing nothing with it because it wasn't for me. Uh, I uh, Columbia said, okay, we got misunderstood. Now we're going to need a flip side. Uh, like, man, they say, you can't, you're not going to the studio. You got to have something already. So I do, okay, here, take this. Here's instant replay. They heard that and they were like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. You got to do an album now. You are really good. We like this. You're going to have to turn in an album. How quick can you do it? And me and Boosie looked at each other and was like, how quick y'all need it? <laughs> they were talking a lot of money. It's like six weeks. We need the album. Oh, yeah. We, we're good. We can have it to you in four and a half. So we went off to Detroit and we recorded the album, which back then, you know, you get away with six or seven songs. We went in. We took instant replay. We took the band off of it and put my stuff on there. Uh, Misunderstood, Star Search, Kiss. We had Bernie come in, do Kiss. We had Maceo come in and play sax. Boosie was pulling out everything he could pull out, you know, to to keep the record alive, but not take me over to P-Funk because I didn't want to be a P-Funk artist. We, we had a few uh, uh, situations that we didn't agree on about some P-Funk because I didn't want to go that direction totally. I didn't, you know, so, you know, and, and it, it, it everything fixed itself. The record came out. Uh, they were hurry up, trying to hurry up and get done with Misunderstood so they could push this instant replay. They spent a lot of money on the video. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on me and uh, for that record for Columbia. And um, the list that you said you were in, 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 in the industry, so, you know, there's always a priority list. It was George Michaels, Michael Jackson, Earth, Wind and Fire, Terrence Trent Arby, Michael Wave. That, that was the priority list at Columbia during that time. Um, and everything was working. I toured. Um, they put up money for promotion stuff. I, I had a big tour. Um, everything, you know, they spent 80 grand on the video back then. That, that's what it took because it was film. Um, Who? Let me ask you, um, what about your, your image at the time? You know, how much of that came from you? How much was from management? What were you trying to project as the microwave persona? Image was 80s. Um, I was, like I always said, I was more of a rocker, so I wanted to have the long hair. I, I've always been that guy with the fringe, and um, the image was 100% me. They loved it, but at the same time, I wanted to go a different direction because now y'all did something to me that I wasn't trying to do. I wasn't trying to have an R&B ballad as my first hit record. <laughs> so it's like... I want to, it doesn't go with my image that I'm trying to put out there. So I want to do suits. I want to be kind of Morris, but not so cool, but just Morris, a more Liberace cool, you know? And they were like, nah, you're going to outgrow your audience if you do that. So no, let's stick where you are. We're going to make that work. I was, the, I was trying to be the black David Lee Raw, you know? Um, they weren't here. They, they liked it, but they wanted it R&B. But then it, it didn't work for me with having a ballad as a record, you know? Wow. So, you know, we, we just went with, with what they went with. Uh, I loved it. You know, it, it all worked out. Well, and the sound-wise, I mean, like you said, you don't want to be completely identifiable with the P-Funk sound, 
So right. It was yeah. definitely a blend of, of some P-Funk, Prince, Roger, yeah. Yeah, and what absolutely. was happening at the time, and with yes. some of that rock element into the, the pop and funk. And, and yeah. that's where I came up. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it worked. And the blend worked. The, even the look said all of that, you know. Um, it, it 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 was a long road to get me to that point, you know, because I fought I fought it. I I wanted to take off the the fringe and the blue jeans. I wanted suits, but they 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 got me together, and then we went on promotional tours, and everything happened. I think organically the way it should have happened. I don't I don't complain about any of it, but it's just here, here's the craziest part of all that. I don't know if you want to go to this part, but uh, I'll segue you into this. Um, once that deal was done. I went back to Columbia to re-sign a second deal, a second album, and they were pretty much like, okay, so, sir, at the desk, she's like some new lady, like, hey, sir, you're who? Uh, Michael Way, you know me? She's like, no, and I don't think nobody in this building know you either, because everybody's different from when you was in here, so i tell you what you do. You got your demo? I was like, yeah, she said, go on in here, go down that back stairs where you go down that elevator, go in the back, and you're going to go around into the garage and go down there, you're going to see a dumpster, put your tape in there, cut out the middle, man, because that's all they're going to do to it. This really happened, and I was so discouraged. It was like, Oh my God, everything just ended. It's over. And I'm like, what happened? They were like, Chew up and spit you out huh? like that, man. Yeah, man. It, it, it's like Bell Bib before that whole New Jack swing. All of that stuff just happened. And 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 so I, I started, it's like, give us a record that sounds like that. So I went in and did it. And I never turned it in because I was so afraid after that. I'd never turn that record in, and then I'd go do another one. Never turn that one in. I'd go do another one. Right now, I've got 13 albums done. Covers, album covers, artwork, liner notes, they're all done. Wow. So now I'm going to be releasing them. I've got one coming out in a couple of weeks um, called um, First Releases from 1989. Each album has, a, you know, this album is called Going to Be One of Those Nights. Uh, and it's got a lot of New Jack Swing and a lot of R&B ballads. It, it's a beautiful record. I was just too afraid to ask somebody to sign me because I was shocked after that. It's like, what? There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.